Hello and welcome to Yopix episode 15. It is 2018 and this is the first podcast of the year. So hopefully we can start it off with a cracking podcast for you. Um, so this podcast will be a little bit different instead of um, me with some of our, some guests in the studio. It's going to be um, an interview with CEO and founder of the Against Malaria Foundation, Rob Mather. Um I spoke to him yesterday and he just went through how he got started um, with AMF um, and also how they kind of combat some of the issues of providing foreign aid. Um, so this podcast is going to be around half an hour, but um, I hope you guys enjoy it. Please remember to leave a comment, rate us on iTunes, um, subscribe on iTunes, and then you will never miss a Yopix podcast again. Now I'll pass you over to me with Rob, the CEO of the Against Malaria Foundation. So first of all, I can see I read through your uh, profile and stuff on AMF. Um, I saw that you kind of got into um, charity, as it will, um, through... uh, the Terry Fund, which was the that um, child who had 90% burns due to a house fire in 2003. Yep. Um, I'd just like to know how you went, how you went from kind of raising money for an individual um, to then extending it to a, a wider um, kind of organisation and then kind of multiple people and millions of people. Sure. Well, the, the genesis of what became Swim for Terry, um, Terry Calvers-Burt was a, a two-year-old who was very badly burnt in a flat house fire, as you've alluded to, and ITV did a one-hour program on her that was broadcast in June of 2004, I think 2003, uh, called Being Terry, which I saw, and I was very moved by uh, the program, invited two friends to swim a distance equivalent to the English Channel in a swimming pool, arguably because I'm not brave enough or fit enough to do the real thing. And they said, yep, we're up for it. Um, and it was a very immediate response from them, perhaps because my line to them was, would you help me raise money for a girl that suffered 90% burns in a house fire? Um, I'd like to do something. And I think that's a pretty persuasive line. And I don't think they really needed um, to hear any more before they said yes. Mm-hmm. That three-person swim... Uh, ended up becoming over a period of a number of weeks, so in total about seven weeks, 153 swims in 75 countries around the world involving 10,000 people. Now, obviously, there's a bit of a gap in my explanation between three people swimming and 10,000 people swimming, um, and that's perhaps one for another time, but uh, there is a little bit of information on that on, on the website, and there is a swimforterry.org uh, a website, T-E-R-R-I is the spelling of her name, that talks about, uh, gives more information about what we did. So it's sort of recorded and sort of in history, if you like, as to what we all did for reasons of transparency. Now, um, a lovely Australian man called Walter called me up. Um, he's very much involved in the world of swimming and agreed to do a swim in Sydney, in Australia. And he's, he asked me, um, with some degree of puzzlement, how have you got, in the space of two weeks, people in 30 countries involved swimming for a small child who lives 40 miles north of London? And I had a very entertaining conversation with him. 
And his line to me uh, towards the end of the conversation was, what are we doing next year? And I think I didn't really uh, believe what I said to him. And I don't think I had a sort of a huge amount of seriousness to it. But I said, oh, maybe we should get a million people swimming next year for some other cause. Mm. And what Walter said to me that has stuck with me all these years is, uh, that's terrific. That means we only need 999,998 more people because I'm in. (laughs) And it set me thinking, I wonder if we could get, given what we've experienced with Sympathetary and this absolutely astonishing embracing of people all over the world, you know, 11, 11-year-olds in La Paz, Bolivia, an entire school of 700 children in Argentina, swims in Fiji, Vanuatu, Greenland, uh, San Francisco, Beijing, Abu Dhabi, you name it, there were people swimming. It was absolutely extraordinary. And I was very humbled by the whole thing um, uh, and very warmed by the sort of level of humanity and caring of people thousands and thousands of miles away from, the, from this girl, from Terry, who obviously suffered very, very significantly, arguably people who are in countries where they've got many um, significant issues themselves. And I said about thinking, I wonder if we could get a million people to swim because people have been sensational to, to the way this has grown and a few calls I made and a few requests to people, would you do it for free because I don't want to pay anybody because I want all the money to go to Terry, which yeah. is what happened. 100% of the money we made went to Terry's trust fund. Um, and I said about thinking, if we could get a very large number of people swimming, um, because the swim was obviously the focus of, of what we were doing for Terry, what would we do it for? Um, and you start to think about, I mean, I've traveled in Asia and Africa a lot in, in, in you know, the decades past, and you think of things like AIDS, um, HIV AIDS, TB, malaria, landmines, fresh water. I mean, there's a variety of things that you can think about and were running through my mind rather than heart disease, cancer, which are more first world issues, because I felt that if we were going to invite a lot of people to swim and sort of go global, if you like, mm-hmm. uh, I hadn't thought about how I was going to do it, by the way, um, I felt that one of those sorts of things might be more interesting as a causal area. I'm very familiar with uh, malaria from travels in the past. I've not had it, um, but that was one that sort of, you know, was of particular interest to me to investigate amongst others. And once you scratch beneath the surface of each of these causal areas, I found that malaria really stood out. Why? Well, HIV AIDS has arguably quite a lot of support. It certainly did 12, 13 years ago when I set up AMF. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of support in the first world because it is a first world or developing world, developed world, you know, issue. Um, tuberculosis, in short, is a very difficult thing, and I looked at that and thought, you know, you know, it needs support. Um, tuberculosis, pneumonia, these sorts of areas, but uh, that that one was sort of challenging. I felt um, fresh water, massive, massive problem. Arguably, you know, it can be quite political. Landmines, definitely political. Um, I like the idea of trying to eradicate something, but um, you know, landmines, of you know, perhaps were sort of you know, could be in that camp. But I thought ultimately that wasn't something that uh, I would would move forward with because malaria really stood out. Why? Biggest killer, or certainly one of the biggest killers of under fives in the world. My wife and I at the time had two young children, so perhaps that resonated with me. Um, biggest killer of pregnant women in the world, bar none, or one of the highest. 
Um, what can we do about it? Bed net. Simple mechanical barrier, albeit you know with insecticide on it. Yeah. Cost at the time five dollars. Protects two people. Every twenty to two hundred nets you put in place, one kitty doesn't die. Wow, powerful. And that, in a sense, in a nutshell, is why malaria. So, um, again, without taking you through the whole story, but I then, if you like, enacted my you can do anything in 20 minutes rule. Um, and obviously, one has to give me a little bit of poetic license with that. And I decided that I would, in short, I would try and get 20 organizations to give me 5,000 people to swim. And if I could do that, with 21 minute phone calls in essence, which broadly is what happened, I would have 100,000 people to swim and that will be a credible platform to launch it and see if we could get to a million. And that in essence is how we went from Swim for Terry to what then became a separate um, activity which was World Swim Against Malaria. Okay, it's very interesting because normally you would, um, when you think about uh, an organization that grows and rapidly becomes international like that, you expect multi-millions of pounds or dollars to be poured into marketing, TV campaigns, stuff like that. But um, it's interesting to see that you've done it pretty much through phone calls and elbow grease, um, which is commendable. Uh, <laughs> um, also, just a, another question. I, I realize I only have you for a short period of time. Um, I just wanted to explore the challenges of uh, foreign aid um, because I know I've yep. been uh, reading a bit of Peter Singer's book, um, How to Save a Life, or uh, I forget the title, um, but that basically describes... Life You Can Save is what his first book, yeah. Yeah, um, that kind of describes uh, the issues that um, our kind of first world and Western civilization has where we like to put a face to our charity, we like to know exactly where our money's going. Um, how have you kind of overcome them barriers, um, kind of avoided corruption, things like that? I know um, I've seen uh, one of your speeches where you've mentioned um, there are stolen nets occasionally because they are worth quite a, a high price on yep. the black market. Um, but what kind of other challenges do you face um, in providing that aid abroad? Well, I suppose the, the, the short answer to the question, Luke, is um, data. Um, one of the things I suppose we do when we approach partners in country, be it ministries of health, other NGOs, be they international or local, is we say, well, we, 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 we communicate the following without saying it in the following way, because um, we say it a lot more politely than I'm about to put it. But we generally say, please don't ask us to trust you. Mm. And we won't ask you to trust us. Let's focus on the data. Because when you're starting to talk about um, a net program, and, and really what we're doing is, in, at one level, quite simple. We're taking money that is entrusted to us from donors. We're using it to buy as efficiently as we can long-lasting insecticidal nets that cost about $2 each these days. We are then working with other co-funding partners who fund the non-net costs. So they fund the shipping, the customs clearance, all of the costs in country of the pre-registration or pre-distribution registration work, the distribution itself. And therefore, we're funding the nets and they're funding, which is money we can 
pass across to manufacturers, if you like, outside, you know, you know, I mean, generally outside Africa, not always, but, mm-hmm. but it goes to a specific, you know, organization and we're funding the nets. We're not having to dispense, you know, lots of little bits of money to fund all sorts of things, including fuel and people and per diems and so on. Yeah. Um, and as a small organization that, um, you know, plays to our strengths and plays to the strengths of our partners who've got, who've got more people in country. So we focus on our design, if you like, means that our money goes into a particular area. So we're not having to worry about um, money in country. And what we do is we ensure that before we carry out a distribution, we understand exactly how many nets are needed at the household level. And the unit of accountability, if you like, mm-hmm. falls to this level of granularity. It is the 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 household. And the example I could give you, I suppose, is if you take um, a district that's got 100,000 uh, households, so let's say half a million people, yeah. and they need roughly 250,000 nets to cover every sleeping space. We need to go to all of those 100,000 households in advance of the distribution to know how many nets each household needs to, to have, because some will have two children, some will have five children, some people will have you know a grandpa living with them, and you don't want to give a fixed number of nets uh, to every household because that would be wasteful and inefficient. You would overcover some, you would undercover undercover others. So you want to do something very efficient in the distribution. And if you want the distribution to be efficient and accurate to protect people, protect the population, you've got to do this pre-distribution registration work. Now, going to 100,000 houses, in terms of the project cost, isn't a lot. It probably costs something like $50,000 across a million dollar budget for the whole project. So as you can see, it's not a massive cost of getting very granular data. That means that when it comes to the moment of distribution, which is typically at a distribution point, to which you've invited all of the um, uh, households or a representative of each household from, let's say, two or three villages. So a village might be um, 500 people, might be 100 households. Obviously, there are urban areas and there are peri-urban areas. They're not all rural. But just to continue with the example, you might have three or 400 people turn up at Um, a particular distribution location and the good news is you've brought uh, 850 nets to that location because the household level survey done pre-distribution said household A needs three and household B needs four and the next one needs five and the next one needs two etc and in that preparatory work you can talk to the village heads um, or the groups in the village that you're liaising with during the pre-distribution registration phase and say amongst other messages, we're going to make sure that every sleeping space is covered. That's why we're doing this work, and we will be coming back with nets. So on the day of distribution, it's perhaps understandable to expect, as often is the case, that the distribution is calm, because everybody knows um, or comes to the distribution with the understanding that there's not going to be some uh, fight for nets because there are too few of them, um, which can happen, but you've got 
people walking away with the number of nets they need because it's been audited, yeah. um, or rather the number of nets per household has been counted. Now then we get into, you and I could continue this conversation and go different levels deeper in terms of the operations as to, you know, what else do we do? And I won't go beyond saying, giving you one example, you might say to me, okay, but how do we know that those four villages, Rob, need 850 nets? Um, could they make up the numbers? And so one of the things that we do in the pre-distribution registration phase is we collect together, the, uh, or our partners collect together the data collectors who are going to go out to these households and note down household head's name, a number of people, a number of nets they need, etc. Yeah. And what we say to them is, if you can imagine 100 of these data collectors in a room, the... Uh, the individual leading the, the, the training, if you like, might say, well, you are 100. Thank you very much indeed for the work you're going to be doing and you're going to be paid this per day for your work and very important role you're playing. And you're going to go to 100% of the households in this particular set of villages over the next few days. And these other five people who are also data collectors like you, what they're going to do is they're going to go to a random selection of 5% of the households that each one of you 100 people go to, and they're going to do that two or three days after you've done your work with no knowledge of the data that you have collected. In other words, what you're saying to the data collectors, back to my trust point, is it's not about trust, it's about data. So we are going to check up on you. Yeah. In other words, be accurate. And there are some very simple mechanisms like that across our operations that you can bring to bear that cost very modest amounts of money, but lead you down a path where we're, at, at worst, maximizing the accuracy and minimizing the problems that we could have with the data. We are not naive enough to think that there won't be problems somewhere because somebody might collude at some point. But the systemic nature of what we do means that we, broadly speaking, drive that out. And we see it in the data because we can compare the two 5% overlaps and see, wow, this tells us because this data doesn't match 100%, which would make us suspicious, it matches very closely, but there are sort of obvious differences that you would expect because somebody's made a judgment call on you know, one aspect of the data that's being collected, because mm -hmm. some of it is not necessarily numeric or quantitative, it's there's an element of qualitative. Um, that's what we do. So it's the design, we fund nets, we don't fund non-net costs broadly. There mm -hmm. are some exceptions. And operationally, we put practices in place that focus on data and the accuracy of the collection, the entry, and indeed one aspect of what we do is we take all of the data that is a requirement of our support, all of the data that's collected frequently on paper at each household. It can be collected using electronic devices, but that's not always the case. And we insist that that data is put in electronic form. It goes into a database. Yeah. Now that costs an additional block of money, but it's relatively small. And that is a massive leap forward in many circumstances, particularly when it comes to accountability, because what you're saying to everybody that's involved in the process is not only are we going to collect this level of data, level of granular data, we're going to put into a database so that it's visible, albeit with restrictions, because it's, it's sovereign data to the country about households and household names, so it's very carefully guarded, but 
it's going to give all the relevant partners incredible visibility of this data. And that means that we, we're driving ever more or ever forward towards accuracy of information and accountability. So it means that people find it very diff difficult to cheat and steal and make up numbers, which, by the way, is only ever a very small proportion of the people we ever deal with. Well, 95% more are honest people full of integrity, but it's not those people we're worried about. So that's how we go about making sure that the work we do doesn't suffer from corruption and, and, and theft. So in a way, you're kind of using precision um, in your data collection to combat kind of human nature, um, which is, again, very simple, but um, at the same time, very, um, oh, well, it seems like a very effective way to, to combat that. Um, just lastly, I, you've got I, yeah, you've got you've got to have a. Not everybody does it though. I mean, a lot of people just can't be bothered. And and I suppose the difference is we can be bothered because we think the the, the benefits and the value add is incredibly important, if not critical. So um, we're a little bit different from others in requiring the levels of accountability that we do. But we, you know, as a result, interestingly, over the years, it's meant that people have beaten a path to our door and said we'd like to work with you because we want to bring this approach to the work we do in this part of the world. So unfortunately we did have a slight technical issue at the end of that call so hopefully we can get Rob Mather back on the phone to continue that conversation regarding AMF and the work they're doing around the world um, but I hope you did enjoy the questions that he was able to answer and also I hope it gives you a little bit more perspective about why we're going into partnership with AMF and why we are so willing to donate our profits to them because of the work they are doing. But for now, we're going to have to leave it there. We do have a, a little bit more of that interview that we weren't able to record, but that we will involve in that piece. So look out for that. Also, hopefully we have some more travel pieces coming out for you um, and some more global news as well. Um, so thank you very much for listening. Remember to review comment subscribe on itunes um, that way you won't miss a podcast and also it helps us in the itunes algorithm um, if you can't get onto itunes remember on, we're on soundcloud um, and remember as well to uh, check out yourpix.co.uk for some cool international content um, that i'm sure you will very much enjoy you'll hear from me again during Yopix episode 16. We are planning on getting um, one of our editors in to speak about her project, um, which is a web series about tattooing, specifically women's roles within the tattoo industry. So that will be very interesting. I hope you all tune into that. Um, but for now, goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.